Morning. If you have a Bible or a phone, who stopped with the Douglas? Uh, I feel like my mom's here. My mom watches this online. Morning, mom. Uh, she'll be so proud of all of you calling me Douglas. Can you open a Bible, please, or a phone to Psalm 63? We're continuing in the Life of David series. If you haven't been with us, uh, you've missed a little bit already. And what we're doing this morning is not not continuing with the narrative of David. We're going to do this every now and then. Uh, it may, you may know or it may be a surprise to you that David wrote a lot of the Psalms. Uh, and some of the Psalms are connected to um, events in his life or times in his life. And so what we want to do is visit some of those Psalms um, and like slot them into the narrative as we're going along. So it makes sense when you read a Psalm sort of as we go week by week. Um, well, I hope it makes sense. It makes sense to us, to me. And uh, this, is, this is Psalm 63 is a, a very well-known um, psalm. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a wonderful psalm. It's going to encourage us this morning. It's one that uh, the description, if you've got a Bible or something else, I think the net does it on the phones. It says like a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. So it doesn't give us the exact timing of when he was in the wilderness. David spent a lot of time in the wilderness. Um, there was the time when Saul was chasing him and he was in the wilderness. And there was another time in his life when Absalom, his son, was trying to kill him. Uh, and he was back in the wilderness again. I think Psalm 63 is when Absalom, his son, was trying to kill him. So he ended up back in the wilderness. He's very familiar with the wilderness. He's like, oh, look, I'm back here again. I remember that rock. I remember that cave. Here I am running for my life again. Oh, deja vu kind of thing. He spends a lot of time in the wilderness being shaped um, by God. And I said this last week that a, a lot of people believe that this was God's primary mechanism for making David the man that he, he, he was. God keeping him on the run. Well, not God, God keeping him. God allowing him to be kept on the run for his life in, in the wilderness. God did things in his life, uh, in, those, in, in the physical wilderness, that he, he, he couldn't have done any other way. And so later in his life, again, he finds himself back in the wilderness. And I think that's what Psalm 63 is. But uh, it's not... It's not incredibly important for us to know exactly where in his life this fits in. It's just that it fits in in the wilderness of his life. Now, for David, it's maybe slightly different to you. Um, most of us, most of us, don't have people who are trying to hunt us down and kill us. You know, I hope that you're here this morning. And that's not your situation, and I know where you are. Yeah, um, but most of us are not running for our lives and going to end up in a physical wilderness. You know, sitting in the crew, running, ducking, diving, kind of thing. But David, David's wilderness is, is always a combination of physical and spiritual. And so we can connect with what David's experiencing and going through because I think it's a universal experience. And it's particularly true for those of us who follow Jesus that you're going to go through times where you feel like you're in a bit of a, a spiritual wilderness. Um, either you're going to be longing for something that hasn't come about yet. You're going to feel, as, as we'll read here, a dryness. And this is, I think, the, the bit that connects with most of us most of the time. I spend a lot of time talking to people, and they're just like, I don't feel God. I don't know when the last time was that I felt close to God. I read my Bible, and it just it looks like words when I'm worshiping. That's sort of okay, but most of the time, I don't feel God. And this is the thing. I worry about my desire for God. It's not just that you don't feel God, it's that you don't desire God. You know, you come to church, that's, you're like, well done, you're here. I mean, I don't want to like, like, 
rain on the people who actually rock up kind of thing. But you're here, but you, you, sometimes you come and you know that's what you should do. But you're sitting here thinking, I feel a million miles away from God in church next to God's people. There's, there's, a, there's a dryness and a barrenness that, that can affect our souls, regardless of who you're around and what's going on around you. And if, you, if you're unfamiliar with what I'm talking about, um, it's probably still going to come. Patches of that for you. Some of you are familiar. Some of you are saying like, how did you know? Uh, I'm so glad I came today because I hope you don't expose me. But that's exactly the state of your soul. And I want to encourage you that you're not like an outlier. You're not like a, weird, a weirdo uh, Christian. Like Most Christians experience this kind of dryness of soul. That, that's why we have psalms like this that help us and connect with us. And that, that's why they're here to, to speak to us. But that, that wilderness experience is something that's very common amongst Christians. And Charles Spurgeon, who um, is a very famous old English Baptist preacher, he said this. He said, we may be in the desert, but the desert, the desert shouldn't be in us. We may find ourselves in the desert, but we shouldn't find the desert in us. Like there's going to be times where you are in a spiritual wilderness, a desert. But by God's grace, I think if we follow the instructions of God's word, you can Find yourself in a wilderness, in a desert, and there's no desert in you. Like David, you are rejoicing in the wilderness. You're singing in the desert. It doesn't make sense, does it? When you're waiting for something or you feel distant from God, whatever else, our natural reaction is to be like, well, you know, I'm not going to go to church. I don't feel, I'm not getting in the field. You know, I'm not going to open my Bible. It doesn't make sense. I keep reading things. It's like, what on earth is going on here? I don't want to go to community group. I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to. Because I don't feel these things. And I think there's, if we follow these instructions and the stuff we're going to look at today, I think there's a way in which we can rejoice in God in the midst of our waiting, in the midst of those seasons of wilderness. I'd say this, it's essential that we learn this. Because if you're only going to sing when you're not in the wilderness, you might not do much singing. If you're going to wait to praise when everything is going swimmingly in your life, man, you may be, you may be waiting for a long time. Because the older I get, there's always some area of my life that feels a bit like wilderness. You know, things are going well there, but they're going sideways there. Or I'm winning in this part of my life, but this part, I'm, I'm finding victory in this part of my life, but this part, going nowhere. And I don't think I'm weird. Well, I am weird, but I don't think I'm unusual. And I, I'm finding the wrong words this morning. I don't think I'm special. <laughs> Still, still not the right word. I think you experience what I experience. I think that's what I'm trying to say. You're very gracious this morning. We are going to get somewhere, Lord willing. Let's read the Bible. Let that help. Let's read Psalm 63 together and then pray. I'm reading from the CSB. Your version might be different. Psalm 63 is translated very differently across different versions of the Bible. Psalm 63. God, you are my God. I eagerly seek you. I thirst for you. My body faints for you in a, in a land that is dry, desolate, and without water. So I gaze on you in the sanctuary to see your strength and your glory. My lips will glorify you because your faithful love is better than life. So I will bless you as long as I live. At your name, I will lift up my hands. You satisfy me as with rich food. 
My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I think of you as I lie on my bed, I meditate on you during the night watches. Because you are my helper, I will rejoice in the shadow of your wings. I will follow close to you. Your right hand holds on to me. But those who intend to destroy my life will go into the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the power of the sword. They will become a meal for the jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by him will boast, for the mouths of the liars will be shut. Let's pray together. Father, as we ask every week, as we come to your word, we look to you to send the Holy Spirit amongst us to be our teacher, to be the revealer of your heart and your ways and your truth to us. We're not bright enough to see what we need to see. We often have a dullness of our minds and our spirits and our hearts to understand and to receive. And so we pray for the quickening and helping work of the Holy Spirit this morning to awaken us, to aliven us, to soften our hearts, to make them receptive to the voice of our Father over us and amongst us. Thank you that your word shapes us like nothing else does. And so we look to you again. This morning, would you come and speak to us? Would you come and breathe on us? Would you come and lift up our eyes to get a clear vision of who you are and your love for us and the mercy and grace that's available to us in you? Come and love us now through your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. There are a few things that I think are helpful for us to see here, and it's all like David, 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 David. I don't know how many points we have, but point number one is this. And we're going through the verses. I'm going to ask um, the guys to just keep the verses as much as we can on track here. The first thing is that David knows God. When you're in the wilderness, this is the number one thing that's important and helpful. What does David say? Oh God, you are my God. This is most important. I'm going to start with this before we move on to a whole bunch of other things. Because if you're, let me say this, if you're not a Christian here this morning, I'm, I'm delighted that you're here. And if you're on a journey to faith, or you're asking questions, or you're not asking questions, and you just did somebody a, a favor and you came along, and you're wondering how long this is going to last, it won't last forever. Um, your most important need this morning is to know God. Not to know things about Him. Not to know people who know Him. Not to know where you can come and sing and worship and whatever else. But to know God. There is a difference between knowing things about God and knowing Him. I don't know about Claire. She's not here. She's at a rugby match this morning. I don't know about my wife. I know Claire. I know Claire better than any other human being because I live with her and she's been my wife for 21 years. I know Claire. Do you know God or do you know about God? You read some stories. You've got a letter from him. You've been around the vibes. It's different, guys. And you'll know what I'm saying. Those of you who are believers in Jesus, you know him. Not that you are known by Him. You're all known by Him. God knows us. Do you know Him? 
unless you can say with full confidence when you hit those doors on your way out this morning, I know God. I don't know everything about God. <laughs> no one's saying that. You don't have to be on the A team. You don't have to have it all figured out. But do you know him? Have you been spiritually woken up that you can say, I, I know God? I do. I do know him. I want to know him more. Maybe I don't know him like I used to. I'm floundering a little bit, but yes, I know him. Unless you can settle that, I want to encourage you and plead with you this morning that you receive that invitation from God this morning to come to know him for the first time this morning. We would love to help you, help you and facilitate an introduction between the God who loves you and longs for you to know him. Everything else I'm going to say doesn't apply unless you know him. I pray you would come to know him. For those of us who do know him, what helps David in the wilderness? The first thing you see in verse 2 is that he sets his vision on God. He says, so I gaze on you in the sanctuary to see your strength and your glory. Remember, I'm going to say it again and again, but I don't want to sound like a broken record, so I'm going to try and not say it that many times. Remember, he's writing the psalm in the wilderness. You've got to keep remembering he's writing the psalm in the wilderness, so he's not in the sanctuary. He's, but he's remembering, he's remembering, he's, he's casting his memory and his imagination and his vision back to a time when he was in the sanctuary and he beholds the what? The strength and the glory of God. When you're in the wilderness, you have options of what you're going to set your eyes on. You do. You've got options of what you're going to fix your gaze on. You can fix your gaze on what's going on around you. You can fix your gaze on people who can help you. You can fix your gaze on your own strength to get you out of the hole that you might be in. You can fix your gaze on your future, on a preferred outcome. There's a million ways we can set our gaze and our hope on different things. David, what does David say? He says he fixes his gaze on God's strength and glory. It's different. It's different to fixing our gaze on other things. Because, point number three, not all the points are going to be this quick. Point number three, David knows what is most important. David knows what's most important. What does verse three say? My lips will glorify you because your faithful love is better than life. That word faithful love, you would have heard this again before if you've been around Parkers for a while. It's chesed. It's the it's the term used all throughout the Old Testament for God's covenant-keeping love. It's the love that God has in himself for his people. It, it's the covenant, the, the strength of love that God has for his people. It's his faithful love. So it's not your faithfulness to him. It's not your love for God. It's his love for you that has changed eternity, has changed history. His faithful love. David knows the faithfulness of God's love. He knows this faithful love. He knows God. And what is he? he? He weighs up things. He says, your faithful love is what? Better than most things. That's not what he says. He says, your faithful love is better than life. I don't know many people who talk like that. I don't talk to myself like that often. It's better than anything that you'll find in this life. It's better than life itself. Who does that sound like? It sounds like Paul, doesn't it, in the New Testament? 
I, de- I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it's better for your sake that I stay here so that I can minister to you. But man, if you give me an option, I want to be with him. Guys, we need to be honest with ourselves. Say, we don't talk like this. If I gave you an option, you'd be like, ah, I'd rather be in Mauritius, you know, living my best life. Man, that would be, that'd be the best thing, man. I'd rather be in my happy place, you know, whatever. What's your happy place? That'll expose you. It'll expose all of us. I was in a counseling thing the other day. The lady said to me, what's your happy place? It wasn't hard for me. It's like the bush. I hate the beach. Oh, Lord, why did you make so much of it? I like the bush. That's my happy place. It's the bush. Where's your happy place? Weigh up your happy place against the faithful love of God. That's what David says. Your faithful love is better than life itself or anything you will find in this life. He's riding in the wilderness. He's on the run for his life from his renegade son who's trying to kill him and take away his throne. And these words come out of his heart. Hey, God, your faithful love is better than life. Even if my life doesn't make it through this, it's not going to affect your faithful love over me. I want to be upfront and honest with you, and especially if you're not a Christian here, this is an advert. Sometimes things go pear-shaped. They go sideways and they don't resolve the way you want them to. They do. Christians get murdered for their faith in Jesus. They don't always get delivered. They don't always get rescued. Sometimes they taste that the faithful love of God is better than their life because their life ends and then they taste the eternal faithful love of God. I'm not sugarcoating the world or life. It doesn't work like that, guys. There's stuff in your life that has been horrendous and there's stuff that may still come that's going to be horrendous that you're going to wish never came your way, unless you learn to rejoice in the faithful love of God, you're going to be weighing it up against everything else in life, both the good and the bad. David's learned a secret to enjoy that faithful love of God in his life. It's better than anything else he's found, he says. He keeps going. Verse 5, what does he say? Next point is that David, David knows what really satisfies us in life. He knows what really satisfies. Verse 5, you satisfy me as with rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. That phrase, rich food, is literally translated with fat and fatness. That's the literal translation. Now, that doesn't really wash these days, does it? You know, like, we're like, oh, mm-mm, nope. That's why they've put it rich food or the finest of foods or whatever else. It's like fat stuff, you know, like you need to all do the low. No, wait, that's not low carb, high fat. That is the fat. Who's on that diet? Oh, you're not going to out yourself now after that introduction. But you satisfy with fat and fatness. You know, in, at the time, that was the, that was the thing. Fatty food. Oh, man, the, the person of honor got all the fat. I, I went on a trip to Uzbekistan probably 20 years ago. And there... The most prized part of the meal is the blocks of fat. Yeah, I know. Like, you're looking at me thinking, seriously? Yeah, they have a national dish called osh. It's basically, just imagine like a big rice dish in a bowl. And you all like carve out the little cave for yourself as you sit in a circle. And like you eat there. And the, the, uh, it's, it's all the unspoken stuff that happens. But they basically flick stuff around 
this bowl kind of thing. And they flick all the, the, the blocks of fat to the guests of honor or to the oldest person. I was an oldest person there. Thankfully, there was a friend of mine who was older than me. And so all the fat ended up in his little cave there. And we were just rejoicing. It was like, flick, flick, flick. like, <laughs> And his, this pile of blocks of fat were just accumulating in his little cave of this thing. I was just like, oh, Jesus, thank you. I'm not the oldest person yet. Like, and they would think they were honoring the guy there. You know, and he's just like turning green looking at all this and like, you know, in some cultures, like that's the fatness, that's the way you honor, that's the thing that satisfies them. And David says, man, you, God, you satisfy me as with the richest of food. And because of that, my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. I remember the first time I went to America, uh, it was for uh, four months. And I remember walking into my first American buffet diner kind of place and just um, feeling so overwhelmed. Some of you will know that I'm a selective eater. Um, Dave, Dave knows well. He's traveled with me more than most people. I'm particular about what I want to eat. And if I find something I like, I just normally stick with it kind of thing. And I've been like this my whole life. I'm not very adventurous. We walked into this, this buffet thing. And I mean, Americans know how to do things properly, you know. I was expecting, you know, like the Salad Valley and a couple of options there. There was food as far almost as the eye could see. And I was paralyzed by indecision. I was like, I don't know where I should go. Everywhere you went, there was just food and options and options and options, you know. And the guys were horrified with us that I only wanted one plate of food. I like eventually managed to figure out what I sat down and I chowed And I was like, lucky, that was great, you know. And they're like, are you only going once? I'm like, yeah, I'm pretty full, you know. And you see people there, they're like the Olympic eating team. They're like backwards and forwards, like uh, that corner, that corner, that corner. That. They look like the Olympic eating team as well, some of them. You know, like they're completely overdoing it. And when I think of this, I remember that. Options, a wash with options. This is what we think life is like. We think we know that our souls need satisfying. There is a hunger in our souls, and we think that we can satisfy it with something off the buffet table. And so we'll try that, we'll try that, we'll try that, we'll try that. We've all got different things that we'll try. And David knows that his heart was built for a hunger for God and would only be satisfied when it feasts on God alone. Because this is the spiritual secret that when your soul is hungry, when you feed on something else, you're still hungry. Retail therapy makes you hungry for more retail therapy. I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to poo-poo on everyone else who goes shopping, and I hate shopping, but the people who do retail therapy, you know. You know, it lasts a little bit. You feel better. You get home with your bags or your stuff or whatever else, and it doesn't last. You are hungry not long after that. What is it that you feast your soul on? What is it, guys? We've all got our things. No one in the room is different. For some people, it's just endless Netflix. For some people, it's exercise. We've all got our things that energize us and refresh us, and we hashtag soul food them. And I'm not saying that we should bin them all. You know, some of the, many of those things are good, and they're God-given things given to us to enjoy. But if you're going to put all your hope in it to feed your soul, and to satisfy you, you're always going to come up short. 
because your soul was designed to feed on God and to be satisfied in Him alone. I've experienced this again and again. I love to ride my bike. And there's times where I've been overwhelmed with life and I think, you know what I need? I need to go and spend four hours riding my bike. Because that'll help feed my soul. That feeds my soul. Make me feel better about myself, about life. You know what? You get back after four hours of riding the bike and I'm still with me. And I haven't fed on what I most need. And we all have the thing, guys. It's It's like a fast food kind of vibe. You're just grabbing and snacking. It's easier. It's easier to hit the buffet table with the other options than it is to feast on God. I'm going to be the first person to say that. You know why? Because the gold is under the ground and takes work to get out. You know, have you ever been to a mine? You know, this is a news flash if you've never been to a mine. They don't have gold bars lying around on the surface kind of thing. The oaks have got to go and dig and sweat and mission to get it out. It's the same thing with feasting on God. It's the same thing in coming to His Word. You have to dig. You have to spend time. You have to work to feast. If you really want to eat, it does require effort. I just want to be honest with you, man. If you you are feeling spiritually malnourished, and you think that verse of the day, twice a week, and coming to church on Sunday is going to sustain your soul, you're aware that it's not. You've got to dig, guys. If you want your soul to feast, you've got to dig. And you've got you've to sit down and make the time to feast. This is why so many of us as Christians are so hungry for everything else. Because we spend so little time feasting on God. Think of your own life. Think of your own diary. What do you feast your soul on first thing in the morning? Most probably it's this for many people. I, I know you. Now, guys, now I've been on a crusade against the phones for the longest time. Your soul does not need a phone first thing in the morning. Your soul needs God. And you're going to continue living spiritually impoverished if you don't change your ways. I'm not making any friends this morning. But I, I don't care. I want your souls to flourish. I want you to feast on God. Because if you don't, your soul's going to go looking for food somewhere else. Because you were made to be hungry. And you have this ongoing hunger. And David has learned, God, you satisfy my soul as with the richest of food. And he's learned to sit and eat and eat and eat. So that your soul is fed up and full. And you don't need to go find something else to eat. The next thing David's learned in the wilderness and how to sustain him through that is that he allows meditation to shape him. He allows meditation to shape him. Verse 6, when I think of you as I lie on my bed, I meditate on you during the night watches. You just have this picture of David just taking time. Lots of time to think and to meditate, to think about God. How is, I just want to talk about meditation for a second here because I think every time you bump into this word, it needs clarifying these days. Christian meditation is not emptying your mind, it's filling your mind. 
you get some forms of meditation where you're just trying to like, you know, like get rid of everything, like hum, zum, like center yourself, find your inner, align or whatever else is. That's not biblical meditation. We're not talking about the practice of like secular mindfulness. I know there's a Christian kind of mindfulness. We're not talking about a secular mindfulness, affirmations, all that kind of stuff. If they work for you, that's one thing. But I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about this morning is biblical meditation. This is the difference with biblical meditation. It's this. It's applying to your life the truths of God's Word. Taking enough time to apply the knowledge of things that you know to the reality of your experience. There's a difference in this, isn't there? How many of you know, some of you have been in church a very long time. You've heard a gazillion sermons. You know where to find stuff in the Bible. You know a lot of stuff. How many of you find a deficiency, a difficulty in applying what you know to the reality of your life? In such a way that you no longer live with anxiety and fear and feeling overwhelmed and stressed and empty. You know what the difference is there? It's meditation. Meditation is the lengthy period of time where you sit and you apply what you know to be true to your life. I'll give you an example of how this would work on a, on a day. It, because it takes time, most Christians don't get to this. Let me use Dave, because he's in the front. I'll be nice to you, Dave. Dave knows the Bible, but Dave has studied theology. Dave has a good memory. He's a bright guy. He knows a lot of things. Dave's going through a difficult time in his life. I'm not, this is hypothetical. No, Dave's not going through a difficult time. Dave is sitting there. He is worried about, give me an example. Let's apply this. This is not in my notes. Now we are off-piste. This could go anyway. Give me a real-time example of something that somebody would be struggling with. How he's going to provide for his family. I mean, that's, everything has got more expensive. Claire came home and told me how much something was costing the other day at the shops. I told her she's not allowed to go back to the shops anymore if that's how much things are going to cost. We're all worried about this, how he's going to provide for his family. What is the biblical truth that Dave knows? That everything belongs to the Lord and God is a faithful provider. Don't worry, Matthew, bloody, bloody, blah, you know. He clothes the flowers of the field. How much more does he love you? Yappa, yappa, yappa. You're, not, you're getting bored with me repeating it because you're like, yeah, we know that kind of thing. Dave knows that. Dave can quote that. Dave still wakes up in the morning or stays awake at night worried. It's not that he doesn't know biblical truth. It's that he hasn't spent long enough sitting and saying, okay, God, I know this to be true. I know this, I'm going to sit here long enough to allow what I know in my head to sink down and settle my heart. So as I go out today to work, as I look at my bank balance, as I go to the shops and I feel overwhelmed with this need to provide, my finances look tight, I'm going to remind myself again and again and again that you are my faithful father, that everything belongs to you, that you know what I need, and that your word says that you have never seen the righteous forsaken. That you'll come through for me. If I don't have it, I don't need it. It may not all come in the same way, but I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you. And I'm not getting up off this chair until you settle my heart. I'm not running around like a headless chicken, overwhelmed like everyone else in the world. God, I'm not moving until you settle my heart. That's the difference between knowing things and meditating on them until they change you. You put that into your life. That's why David lies awake through the watches of the night. He doesn't lie awake for 10 minutes, guys. 
it doesn't take 10 minutes. It takes the watches of the night. But if you want to live with a heart that's settled in God, different from everyone around you who looks overwhelmed and running around like headless chickens, it's going to take time to settle your heart in God. He allows meditation to shape him. Second last thing, David knows whose shadow he's under. Verse 7, because you are my helper, I will rejoice in the shadow of your wings. David knew all about darkness and difficulty and wilderness. How do you discern whether you're in the darkness of difficulty or whether you're under the shadow of wings? Because it's dark under both. And that's the reality here. David knows God well enough to know, hey, it's dark all around me, but it's not my circumstances. It's because I'm under the shadow of his wings. I'm under his protective care. I should have found a picture for it. I can't remember. I've been a bad bird over the last couple of years. I don't remember all the birds' names. Who knows that bird who makes that lacquer canopy when he goes fishing? Where all my fellow birders? Sorry? Thank you, Miss. Black egret. When he goes fishing in the water, hoises wings out like this, makes a big shadow, confuses the fish, and then whacks them like that. The shadow of the wings. Go and find that bird, the picture. It's amazing. Are you under the shadow of his wings? If you're a believer, you live under the shadow of his wings. That's the thing. If you're a follower of Jesus, you live under the shadow of the wings of your father. It's not every now and then he comes to your sister and he's like, oh gosh, you're having a rough time. Here I come with my wings. It's like, no, 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 you live. You live under the shadow of his wings. That's what David knows to be true. He says, you are my helper. I'm on the run. My son wants to kill me. I'm back out here in the wilderness again. You are my helper. I will fuss bait under the shadow of your wings. Nope. It's not what it says. That's not a word. That's not a biblical word, fuss bait. I will endure in the shadow of your wings. It doesn't say that either. What does it say? I will rejoice in the shadow of your wings. Guys, when you know that you live under the shadow of the wings, you rejoice. You sing in the desert. You sing in the desert. This is, it's, it's something you have to learn. You don't wait to get back. It's not like I'm going to sing I'm going to testify. I'm going to rejoice when I get back to Jerusalem. I say I'm going to sing in the desert because I live under the shadow of his wings. Before I mention this last point and close, I, I don't want you to get the wrong impression that this morning I'm saying to you, hey, when you find yourself in the wilderness and your heart's struggling, and you're feeling distant from God, and your soul's dry, do all of these things. Do all of these things. Because uh, the problem is when, you, when you're feeling like that, you, you don't want to do anything. And now you come to church, and I've given you another like 16 things to do. And you're like, I can't even do one thing. Now you've given me more things to do. I'm not going to get anywhere. I think doing all of these things that we've mentioned this morning will massively help you. But there's one thing that will help you more and will encourage you to do everything else. This psalm needs to be read backwards. Like many psalms, it needs to be read backwards. The next verse, I think, is the most important verse of this whole psalm. Verse 8. The point is that David knows who's holding him. 
Verse 8, I follow close to you. Your right hand holds on to me. When you're in the wilderness, the temptation is to try hold on to God and to think, I need to, I need to, I need to, I need to do these things. I need to jump through these hoops. I need to, I need to, I need to. And the truth of the scriptures is what? That sometimes you can't. And sometimes you don't want to. You don't want to. You don't want to find your Bible. You don't want to feast your soul on what you most need. You don't want to serve God's people. You don't want to meditate. You don't want to do the things that are really going to help you. And then what? We just give up. No, we don't. What changes everything is this verse. I will follow close to you because what your right hand holds on to me. This is the truest thing about you as a believer, that God has taken a hold of you and that his grip on you is tighter than your grip on him. Because your grip will slip again and again and again. Guys, you're going to let go this afternoon. And what will be your soul's encouragement when you let go again? When you promised, you promised for the thousandth time that you're going to sort your stuff out and you're not going to do that thing again or you're going to put in the effort, you're going to... And when you don't, what's going to be your soul's encouragement? That He holds on to you with His right hand. That is the symbol of God's strength and power in the Scriptures. God has taken a hold of you and what God takes hold of, God doesn't let go. Jesus says, no one can snatch them out of my hand. This is the most encouraging truth in the Scriptures, I think. That God takes hold of you and you can't wriggle your way out of His hand and He will never, ever, ever let you go. There will never be a moment, a second, a, 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 a fraction of time where Malcolm Davidson will be let go of by God. He has that man for all eternity. Not because of anything Malcolm did. You don't even have to pat him on the back. He didn't do anything. He's got you too, Will Oldnell. Praise Jesus. He's got those of you who've placed faith in him because he set his affection on you and he holds you. He does want us to long for him. He wants us to hunger. He wants us to feast. He wants us to meditate. He wants us to rejoice. He wants us to seek him for our soul's food. But even when you don't, he still is holding you. So you don't have to panic and stress. The illustration I had of this was the difference between foster kids and adopted kids. I haven't ever fostered a kid or adopted a kid, so don't pull too many holes in this illustration. But I had this picture of like foster kids who are checking out a home. They're in a home. They've been fostered. They've come from the orphanage. Their family are kind of checking them out, wondering should they adopt them? Should they keep them? And the foster kids know, man, you've got to be on your best behavior. Otherwise, you're going to get sent back to the orphanage. You can't put a foot wrong. Be on your best behavior so that this family will take you in. And the parents will love you and make you theirs. And some of us live with God like your foster kids. And the truth of the scriptures is that you've been adopted and that you are never, ever getting sent back anywhere. You're part of the family, not because of anything you did, but because the Father set his affection on you. And you're not going anywhere. 
So you get to be part of the family. You get to be a kid who's just loved. The father loves you. You don't have to worry about your performance. Oh, is he going to reject me? Is he going to send me back to the orphanage? No. He wants all the best for you, but he's not sending you back anywhere. He's not removing his love. He's not rejecting you. He's made you his. He holds you. Let me close with these words from Isaiah as we come to pray. Isaiah 40, from verse 28 to 31. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the whole earth. He never becomes faint or weary. There is no limit to his understanding. He gives strength to the faint, and he strengthens the powerless. Youths may become faint and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not become weary. They will walk and not faint. Some of you are youths. I think the ESV says young men. Some of you are young physically. Some of you are young spiritually. Some of you, some of you are just weary. It says even young, young people will get tired. They'll get weary. You'll faint, you'll stumble and fall. What's the solution? It says, but those that trust, other translations say, those that wait on the Lord will renew their strength and they will soar, they will run, and they will walk. Because that is the promise of the scriptures that if you wait on God, you will soar and run and walk. Doesn't matter how old you are, how many years you've got with God, you need to learn the secret of waiting on Him. To renew your strength. I had a guy cancel a meeting with me this week. You know what the reason was? He's just tired. He just said, I'm just too weary. I'm, I'm just tired. I've taken a couple of days off. He's young. What an interaction. I'm wise enough and ugly enough and old enough to know that some of you are exhausted. And your souls are weary this morning. And all I want to do is plead with you to wait on him. I don't have what you need. Your mates don't have what, they, what you need. A change in your circumstances isn't what you need. You need to learn to wait on Him until, until He renews your strength. You just keep waiting until you start to feeling like you can soar and run and walk again. So let's start the waiting this morning. And then I want to encourage you to make time today and over the next few days. Just wait, God. Wait and feast and feast. There is more in the goodness of God that you can feast on than you can ever touch. You're not going to empty the table. You're not going to take other oaks child. Don't worry about it. Take as much as your soul needs. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and we, we want to thank you that you are the God that satisfies us. 
And first, we want to say that we're sorry, Father, for all the, all the times again and again that we run to other things to feast ourselves. Again and again, we've done it, and we're going to do it again. We're going to look to other things to satisfy us and feed our souls in the way that only you are able to. We're sorry for those times, Father. We, we pray you would forgive us for loving other things more than we love you, looking to other things more than we look to you. And I pray for myself, I pray for my friends here this morning that you would do a, a work amongst us this morning. You know our hearts, thank you that you know us better than we know ourselves, and you see, you see the weariness, you see the dryness, you see the longing, and we just, we simply look to you. And I pray, Father, that you would pour out the Spirit of God amongst us, that you would give us grace to receive and to drink and to eat, even this morning, for, for some who have just endured such a long season of dryness and weariness that today would be, there would be a dam breaking. There'd be an outpouring that would come and just run over the dry riverbed of their life, that in your kindness you would do more good to us this morning and in the coming days than we ever deserve. Thank you that that's the God that you are. You don't wait for us to clean up our act, to sort ourselves out, that in your mercy you're always moving towards us to give us what we most need. And so we wait on you this morning. Thank you for that promise this morning that as we wait on you, we renew our strength. You're the strong one, we're not. We long to soar and to run and to walk with you in the strength that you give, and so we just wait on you now. We look to you collectively say, would you come and breathe on us? Would you come and pour out your strength and your life amongst us? And pray particularly for those who've been, who have been longing, who have been desiring, and there's just felt like a ceiling. There's prayers have been falling on deaf ears. They've just had a longing, but they're just struggling. I pray for your particular mercy for them. Thank you, Father, that you say you are a rewarder. You're the rewarder of those who earnestly seek you, and I pray you would reward them with the special gift and abundance of your presence this morning. We come to, to wait on you and to rejoice in you this morning. Come and love us, we pray in Jesus' name.